We'll be reading from Matthew, the 17th chapter, 22nd and 23rd verse. Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and the third day He will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Good morning. It's always good to be home. In the words of Fred Craddock, when Jesus was alive, every good story began with when the Messiah comes. <clears throat> so there was a beggar on the side of the road who was out with a sign asking for money, and as people would throw coins into his coffers, they would say, you know when the Messiah comes, everyone will have enough. There'll be no need for begging. There was a man who couldn't walk, and as uh, friends and family carried him from place to place, they would say, you know when the Messiah comes, you'll be able to get around just fine. There was the boy who said the wrong thing on the wrong day to the wrong Roman soldier. He was kicked until he couldn't breathe. His mom held him in in her arms and she said, you know, when the Messiah comes, we'll be rid of the Romans. There'll be peace. Finally, there'll be peace. And you're taught growing up, if you grew up in a Hebrew household, that when the Messiah comes, there'll be no misery. When the Messiah comes, all suffering would be gone. Well, then Jesus comes around. He says, I am the Messiah. And misery just seemed to follow the guy around. Uh, People tried to throw him off cliffs. People plotted to kill him. And eventually, some succeeded. The passage that Gerald just read for us is one of several in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And the disciples just couldn't get it. It didn't make any sense to them because there was no such thing as a suffering Messiah. It's like a flying octopus. Those are just mutually exclusive categories. They didn't understand it. So, of course, they were greatly distressed. They were sorrowful. They didn't make any sense to them. Here's the Messiah and he's going to suffer and die. It doesn't make sense. Since. And I think Matthew very subtly hints at this problem throughout the gospel in ways that we often don't pick up on. There's this question if Jesus is king, then why doesn't he have a throne in Jerusalem? That's one of the most important prophecies, maybe the most important prophecy in the entire Old Testament. It's about the son of David whose throne would never end. Well, how is Jesus the Messiah if he's not here? What does it mean to follow a man who's gone? I mean, you remember in the resurrection scene in Acts, they're all just sort of looking up and waiting for him to come back. It doesn't make sense. What does it mean to be a Christian if the guy's not here? What does it mean to be a Christian in absence? And I think this is a theme throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew, this theme of absence. Most of, or at least many, of the important parables of Matthew have this theme in it. Let me give you some examples. Matthew 13, there's a farmer who plants a field full of wheat, and it starts growing, and weeds come up among the wheat. And the workers say, hey, we should do something about this. And what does the farmer say? He says, no, just let it grow. I'll come back at the end of the story, and I'll sort it out at the very end. The farmer's gone for all the growing of the wheat. In Matthew chapter 20, there's a story about a man who hires workers for his field, but when they're doing the work, he's inside sipping sweet tea. He doesn't come back until the very end of the story when it comes time to pay the workers. Matthew 21, there's a real estate mogul who buys a plot of land. He puts a wine press there, and there's all these problems that crop up. Why? Well, because we're told he went into, quote, another country. He was gone for the whole story until the very, very end. 
Matthew chapter 24, we have the story of a master who leaves his house. Some servants are wise, some are not wise. But he's gone, and it's not until the end that he returns to set things right. And in Matthew 25, the chapter will be today, there are three parables. And I think it's hard to argue anything that this, this is the most important section in the teaching of Jesus. It represents the climax of his teaching ministry as presented in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one of those parables, there are ten virgins. You may remember this. And they wait the whole parable for the bridegroom to arrive. He's gone until the whole thing ends. The second parable in Matthew 25, there is a master who leaves for, again, a quote, a long time. And there are three servants who get uh, various amounts of talents. At the very end, he comes back to settle. And then the last parable of Matthew, which is where we are, I think the most important teaching in the Gospel of Matthew for Jesus, all of this comes full circle. So if you, if you have your Bible, Matthew 25, we're going to start in verse 31, what I think is a familiar text. You see, Matthew's Gospel was written some 40 years after the death of Jesus. Peter was dead and he was killed for his faith. Paul was dead he was killed for his faith. Christians were looking around and saying, things are getting worse for us and not better. And they were. And they reasonably began to ask, so where's the guy who runs this farm anyway? When's the master going to get back from his journey? And Jesus presents a teaching that speaks to those churches in that time. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He places the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. You came to see me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. It's a show on television that I, I've only seen a couple episodes on. I'm not even sure. It may still be on, uh, on air now. It's called Undercover Boss, where the most important uh, person in a company will go do the menial labor. So the guy who owns 7-Eleven will go drive trucks and stock shelves and work the cash register as a way of seeing how the company works. But I think people liked that show because at the end of it, uh, the boss would reveal himself for who he was or herself for who she was. And they would reward those workers who were good. So those who were barely scraping by, they'd give them a promotion, or they would pay for their children's college, or they'd buy them a car, or pay for a nice vacation. And we love this because we want to believe that the things that we do matter. The stuff we spend our days doing, that someone's noticing it, that there's some reward for it. And this is, this is a good instantiation of this parable, uh, Undercover Boss. It's, it's this inclination in us that what we do, we want it to mean something. <coughs> This teaching tells us what the whole Gospel of Matthew is leading towards. 
And that's in absence. Christ is still present. His disciples look at him and say, But you weren't here. You were gone. We worked hard, but you weren't here. And he says, Whenever you loved or cared, you, you loved and cared for me. Jesus teaches us this point that the disciples, I think, probably spent the rest of their lives learning. And that is, they used to believe that wherever the, the, the Messiah is, there is no misery. But they came to believe, wherever there is misery, there too is the Messiah. You see, we, we serve a God who did not build a bridge over the Red Sea. He did not dig a tunnel under it. He did not find a path around either side. He parted the waters and he walked right into the middle of it. The same way we serve a God who did not find a way over our suffering or, over, or under it, did not build paths around it. You see, we, we want Easter without Good Friday, but that's not the kind of God that we serve. We serve the God who walked right into the middle of suffering, who made himself present when he seemed most absent, who made himself present in the middle of misery. There's a writer who died last year. His name is Elie Wiesel, um, a well-known survivor of the Holocaust. He was in Auschwitz. He wrote a book that was required reading in, uh, when I was in high school, and it's short and it's worth your time if you haven't read it. It's called Night, um, among other things he wrote. There's a story in there that's always uh, been relatively chilling to me. At a time when, uh, in Auschwitz, the uh, prisoners were all gathered to watch public executions, which was a, a typical thing to try to remind people of who was in power. And there were three nooses hung on the gallows, so three prisoners would be executed that day. But when the prisoners walked out to be executed, there was a gasp around the room because one of the prisoners, unlike the other two, was a young boy. Now, typically, adult men would be executed, but not, not a young child. And when the platform dropped, the two men died relatively quickly because of their weight, but the, the boy didn't. The boy sort of hung suspended from life and death for a long time. And while the crowd were watching this anxiously, someone yelled out a few rows back from Elie Wiesel, Where is God? And that's a good question. I, I certainly in that circumstance have no good answer. It's a hard question. It's always a hard question. But Elie Wiesel says, as he passed by leaving and you looked at that boy, inside he thought, he's there hanging on the gallows. Now some people have taken that to mean that Wiesel is saying God died in the Holocaust. So we can't think of God the same way after the Holocaust. And I understand that point. But later he clarified to say he didn't understand why it happened. But he didn't see God as the chief perpetrator. He saw him as a fellow victim. One who suffered alongside. One who suffered. That God is God precisely because of this desire to be with us in our misery. Precisely because He's present in absence. Because He suffers. Actually, in Mark's Gospel, the very first person to say that Jesus is the Son of God is a surprise character. There's a couple times in the Gospel where these sort of demon characters say it. But it's not till the very end when a, when a Roman soldier with weak knees at the foot of a cross looks up and says, surely this was the Son of God. The first person to say it is that Roman soldier at the foot of the cross. It's almost like he wasn't able to wear that title before the cross. That the cross was the moment where we see Jesus at his most godlike. Where we see Jesus as God in flesh. And it's one reason why I think the cross is such a captivating symbol. You know, despite 
uh, maybe the best attempts. Not many of us wear jewelry that features an, an empty tomb. Um, but people have crosses on their Bibles and on their pulpits and um, uh, on, the, on, their, on their fingers and on their necks. It's because we recognize the cross is the, the deepest revelation of who God is. It's this picture of complete selfless giving. And as churches, we are meant to manifest this. To be a church in the shape of the cross in moments when, when Christ just seems absent. That we are called to make Christ present in His absence. I mentioned before, I think last time I was here, I mentioned that when I was uh, preaching in the Memphis area, the hardest thing that we dealt with, uh, that I dealt with as a minister, was the time when one of our deacons, a 41-year-old man, uh, had a routine procedure and then ended up in ICU and died. Uh, he left behind a wife and, and, and two young girls. Um, it was hard. It was absolutely miserable. It was horrible to pray and pray and pray and not get the answer we want. I can remember when I was sitting at the table of his new widow with her family around. We were talking about sort of funeral plans. And one of the family members, again, very reasonably said, where has God been in all of this? And Renee, his, his widow, said, I don't understand this. But I don't doubt where God has been. He's been in the church family and the school family. She was a principal of an elementary school who didn't leave my side, who took care of my kids, who slept next to me in the ICU waiting room. God's been in the doctors and nurses, some of whom I witnessed lead public prayers on behalf of this family in that waiting room. He's been on the people who just wanted to do something nice. I can remember one day when I was there, not long after he died, a lady from our church, a beautiful, wonderful, um, older lady from our church, uh, lived on the far side of that same neighborhood. She just opened the door, was unlocked. She came in crying, was carrying a casserole, laid it on the counter, didn't say a word to anybody, and just left in tears. Uh, she, didn't, she had nothing to say. She did not know what to say, but she could bake a casserole, and she wanted to do something. And Renee says, I don't get it. I don't get why this has happened. I don't think I deserve this. But I've seen God all the way through it. This is how church is meant to work, right? This is Matthew 25 in action. That is, when there is suffering, we find Jesus in the presence of those who love and care and give among us. In His absence, He's made present through us. And I've always found this parable interesting. I can remember when I was a young child, and I would have learned it um, here. I would have learned this parable as a child. I thought about it literally, as maybe some do. I wondered, because there's a lot of positive imagery in the Bible about sheep, and I always wondered why God liked sheep and didn't like goats. But once you get a little older and you start to realize what's, it's a more metaphorical usage, I still came to think about this in a very binary way. That is, good people are sheep, bad people are goats, I've got to be a sheep, I've got to do these things, and that makes me a sheep. But I, I think that's asking the wrong questions of this parable. In fact, there's actually uh, maybe a famous scene that you, some of you are aware of in, a, in Douglas Adams' book, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where this computer is calculating what the meaning of life is. It's doing so for thousands of years. And it finally gets the answer for what's the meaning of life. The answer to the meaning of life in the book is 42. Um, and I think Adams is saying, it's not, that we don't, it's, it's not just that we don't know the ultimate answers. We don't even know the ultimate questions. We don't even know how to ask the right questions about what life is about. And I think a lot of us read this parable and we ask questions like, what do I have to do to get to heaven? And what do I have to do to be saved? How many sermons have you heard on that topic? And as good of a topic as it might be. But I don't think that's the question that Jesus is asking in this parable. I don't think it is. 
I think he's asking a different question. What do we do when our leader's gone? How do we make Christ present in his seeming absence? Because when I read this parable, when I was growing up, I often would think, I've got to do these things. I've got to make a checklist, and I've got to get a bucket of KFC to take to a sick person. I've got to go visit someone in prison. I've got to go uh, visit someone who's hungry. I've got to clothe the naked, feed the hungry, uh, uh, give drink to the thirsty. If I don't check every one of those boxes off, I'm not following this parable. But I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. Now notice, in this story, the sheep and goats are separated prior to any discussion of their deeds. The sheep are not saved because of what they did. They're saved because they're sheep. That is, they followed the shepherd. They know his voice. They're saved because they're sheep. The goats are rejected, at least not primarily, because of what they didn't do. They're rejected because they're goats. They didn't follow the shepherd. They don't know his voice. The sheep are saved because they're sheep, which, not so coincidentally, is the same reason why they did the good things in the first place. What surprises me most about this parable is the amount of surprise in the parable. Right? The goats are surprised they're goats. The sheep are surprised they're sheep. Well, it just seems odd, doesn't it? But then I've been thinking this last week. Many of the people that I would categorize as the most generous people I know might not consider themselves particularly generous. But I see their interior state. I see who they are through their exterior actions, through what they do. This is why I I think that Jesus and Paul are so committed to this imagery of, of fruit trees. It's all over their teachings. A tree is healthy. A fruit tree is healthy when it's producing fruit. And if it's not producing fruit, Jesus says, cut it down and throw it away because it's worthless. A Christian's healthy when that Christian, one saved by God, is producing the fruits of the Spirit. It's living out a life of mercy and kindness, of love, joy, and peace. You You can't see faith. It's hard to quantify faith. I've heard people say that faith is it's kind of like calories. You, know, you can't see a calorie, but when you pile them all up, they're pretty obvious. Um, as Tony Campolo said, service is just love and work clothes. That's the defining characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. It's what we're saying when we say they'll know we're Christians by our love. We're saying love doesn't just stay inside us. We put work clothes on it. We get to work. We get involved with this world because Christ was involved with this world. In fact, fact, if we believe Matthew 25, we get involved with this world because Christ is still involved in this world. So what David Lipscomb meant in 1873 when there was a cholera epidemic in Nashville and most of the wealthy folks were moving out of Nashville. One out of 25 people died that summer in Nashville. David Lipscomb lived in the suburbs. He lived way out, way out uh, of Nashville at the time um, and didn't have to be around much suffering. But he chose to ride his buggy into town every day, as often as he could, to take care of those who were dying of cholera in what was the poorest section of the city. And he got mad at Christians who had abandoned Nashville at this time. And his, this is his, these are his words, 1873. Let us realize that every helpless, needy one among us is the personification of Christ. And how shall I reject my Christ? He's not saying, and this is important, he's not saying, I am being Jesus when I go see the poor. He's saying, I meet Jesus in the middle of the misery of this city. 
because of that, I cannot abandon my city because I cannot abandon him. This is the end result of the saving grace of God. God's grace produces love, and love gets to work. It's what Jesus meant earlier in Matthew when he says when you give, you should give in a way that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. It's so natural that you're not even aware of it. Generosity and giving and love, that just becomes the language of what it means to be a Christian. One of the preachers that I've always enjoyed is a man named Haddon Robinson. And he preached on this text a lot. And here's the way he often ends a sermon when he talks about Matthew 25. He'll imagine the day of judgment when he's standing in front of God the King ready for the judgment ledger to be brought down. And God says, do you have your date book with you, Dr. Robinson? And he fumbles in his pockets and he pulls out a date book. He says, I do, I have my date book. God says, would you look up March 15th, 1996? So he flips through his date book. March 15th. And he says, oh, yes. Oh, God. Thank you for remembering this day. This was the day when I was named one of the 25 best preachers in the English-speaking world. That magazine, Newsweek magazine, that's up on my wall. I'm just so grateful that you remembered that and that that brought you honor. And God says, oh, I don't. I don't really read those magazines. I don't know really anything about that. He said, but do you remember that day? You heard that some students on your campus, he taught at a seminary, couldn't pay the bills. And so you put $100 in an envelope and you stuck it in their mailbox. Do you remember that? He says, well, 1996, I, st- I stuck it in their mailbox? No, God, I don't, I just don't remember. And God says, you know what? I was there. I remember. He says, Dr. Robinson, turn in your date book to uh, May 4th, 1986, and so he flips through his book and he says, oh yes, God, I was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. I went to the conference and presented a very important paper. That was a big, big day in my career. I'm so, I'm just grateful, God, that that meant something. I'm grateful that you remember. And God says, oh, I don't, I don't really go to those conferences. I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. What I'm saying is that that day, you had lunch with a friend of yours who was in ministry and who was on the verge of getting out. And you sat down and you talked with them and prayed with them. Even though you were busy, you spent two hours with them. Do you remember that? He says, 1986, my lunch that day? God, I don't, I don't remember. God says, but I was there. And I remember. See, a single act of service, a single second nature, unthought about act of service, through the power of God's Spirit, can resonate in ways that we can't calculate. Can resonate in ways far bigger than who we are. I think there's going to be a lot of surprises on the Day of Judgment. And by that I mean, those of us who've lived lives of faith, Lives following Jesus. All these small moments where the kingdom of God broke into the world, those are remembered. Those are seen. Jesus says when you did it to the least of them in ways that won't be remembered long after you're gone, I remember them. It's what Dallas Willard says in a way that I think is is worth hearing. That grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We can't earn salvation, but boy, we should put it to work. If we follow God's call, we'll find ourselves with work to do. And I don't want to turn Matthew 25 into a new law. I don't want to do that. But I also know that I teach classes now. And I have to give final exams. And I always give out a study guide. For some reason, like, 
Students fall apart if you don't have a study guide. So I have to give a study guide out. It's just a list of things that you need to know if you're going to do well on the final exam. I'm always amazed at how people still don't know the things that are on the study guide, but a list of things. If, if there's a study guide in Matthew's Gospel, it just has one thing on it. And it's, did the love leave your building? Did you love people outside of this room? Did you love the least of these? That's the only question on the study guide. And while it's not a new law, boy, we better be prepared to live lives consistent with what we've been told about here in Matthew 25. To meet Jesus in the misery of our lives and our cities. Did we put our love into work clothes? I firmly believed you're saved for being a sheep. You're saved for faith in Jesus. But if you're a sheep, you produce wool. And for Christians, service is like a sheep producing wool. We produce good works. We're consistent with the life and the teaching of Jesus. Another one of the preachers I enjoy, and I'll work it to a close here, is a man named Will Williman. He's a Methodist preacher. He taught for like 30 years at Duke University, and he decided near the end of his career that he wanted to get more involved in actual church work, not just at Duke on the campus. So uh, the Methodist church for a while, this lasted six or seven years, put him in charge of all the Methodist churches in North Alabama. So um, if you knew any Methodist people in Florence or those areas, for a while he was their bishop. Uh, One of, I think, one of the great preachers of uh, the last uh, few decades. And as you might know, churches in America in general are declining, but the Methodist church is one of a handful that's declining a little faster than some of the others. And so it was a hard job. This was a very depressing job. His office was based out of Birmingham. He'd have people come to his office all day and say, we need more money. And he would say, we don't have any money. And people would come and say, we hate our preacher. And he says, we don't have any extra preachers to give you. Uh, He would just have one after another, just complain after complain after complain, and saying, trying to fix all the holes that were springing up around him. It was a difficult job. And one day he stayed till 6 o'clock just listening to people talk to him about these sort of things on a Friday. And he walked out of his office rubbing his eyes. His secretary was there. And without looking up, he says, I'm out. I'll see you Monday. The secretary says, "Uh, Dr. Willeman, I talked to a couple ladies from Coleman who wanted to come by and see you. And he says, oh, no. No, I'm not talking to people from Coleman. All they want to do is complain about their preacher. I am sick of talking to people from Coleman. And when he opens his eyes, the secretary has got her eyes wide. And he turns around, sees two little old ladies, and says, You must be from Coleman. Let's go to my office. Uh, And going back, he sits down. And they said, We just want to tell you a story. She said, it was about two or three years ago that Gladys' son got his second DUI. Gladys' grandson, rather, got his second DUI. And they put him in the youth offenders prison in North Alabama. So he went on a Wednesday to visit him during visiting hours. And we were appalled. There was no programs for them to learn or do anything. They were just sort of sitting like dogs in cages. We thought the situation was bad. And we decided we wanted to do something about it. So we planned, while we were visiting Gladys' grandson to go talk about that at church, a Bible study on Wednesday night. And we, we actually asked to meet with the warden before we left, and we said, we're going to come back on Friday after we've talked about it at church to see if we can figure out some things to do here to help. And the warden said, uh, no, ma'am, you can't come back on Friday. Visiting hours are only on Wednesday. And she pulled her glasses down and said, uh, son, I, I taught the governor English literature. We'll be back on Friday. And a couple phone calls later, they were back on Friday. Um, and they, over the course of time, a lot of these retired school teachers set in place a literacy program. They found that 50% of the people in that uh, youth offenders prison, people in their late teenage uh, up to about 30 years old years, couldn't read above an elementary school level. And so they taught. They taught them how to read. They, they set in place a GED program. Uh, they worked. And they even had a little program where if it was someone's birthday... 
they would have a person volunteer to do those sort of break-off cookies and bake cookies, put them on a paper plate and take them into the prison. And there were grown men, 25-year-old men, who were brought to tears because they'd never gotten anything for their birthday before. And over time, this little church actually started to grow, started to do well. It became one of the central focuses of their church life. And she told Will Willimon this in his office. And he said, well, what is it? This is great. What is it you want? Do you need money? We don't have money. Do you need help? We, we can try. And she said, no, no, I, I don't want you guys to mess this up. This is our thing. I'm just here to tell you this. I bet your job is depressing some days. But this thing ain't over until God Almighty says it is. And she got up and walked out. And that's a message I think we all need to hear. That despite whatever circumstances are in the world, despite what we see with our eyes, this thing ain't over until God says it is. And in fact, what we read in Matthew 25 is that Jesus hasn't abandoned this world. He's not gone when he seems absent. In fact, he's more present. Those guys in that prison, when they saw those elderly ladies teaching them English, they probably thought about Jesus. They saw Jesus in them. But paradoxically, if we believe Matthew 25... Those elderly women saw Jesus in the prisoners too. They met the Messiah in the middle of misery. So, where's the hero of our story? Where's the guy who runs this farm? When's the master going to get back from that long journey? Well, I say, open your eyes and open your hands. Because you just might find that Jesus is most present when he seems absent. We serve a God who will not walk around, above, or under suffering. He walks right into the middle of it. And if that's true, that's where we belong to, in the middle of it. So, let's love him, let's love each other, and let's fundamentally put that love in work clothes. Because sheep produce wool. And we produce the fruit of the love of God in our lives. This morning we gather together as Christians for a lot of reasons, but one of which is to remind each other about the things that really matter. We can get caught up in things that don't pretty easily. We remind ourselves about the things that matter. And so this morning, if uh, you feel convicted in some way and need to respond, I'll be up front as we stand and sing.